Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Today, we are discussing the sound of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And appropriately, we are speaking with the two-time Academy Award-winning director himself and his co-director, Mark Gustafson. Joining the discussion is sound supervisor Scott Gershon, along with re-recording mixers Frank Montano and John Taylor, the latter of whom you may remember from our episode on Bardo from earlier this week. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is currently available on Netflix. And as always, we will have a link for you in our show notes. If you haven't seen it yet, I really suggest that you do. It's an absolute delight, although it is a dark delight, as you will hear from our conversation. But then again, we are talking about a Guillermo del Toro film, after all. Wait, wait, wait! Time has come to say farewell. For how long will I go? Is it far? No one knows, no one can tell. And that's where I wanted to start the conversation with Guillermo. So I asked him about his decision to set the story during the rise of Mussolini and fascist Italy between the two world wars and what he wanted to impart to the audience with that choice. Well, it's not about imparting. It's about really telling a story about uh, a puppet that doesn't behave like a puppet in a time where everybody does, you know, and uh, to talk about truth and lies in a way that is a lot more deep than the saying, I didn't eat my soup today, in a time where the biggest lie is having people think that they are a superior race or they are entitled to dominate the world or that they together can vanquish anyone and they're better than someone, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, those are the big lies. And more importantly, the lies about you uh, being obedient and folding into the agenda of a state uh, is a quality, which it isn't. And uh, disobedience with a conscience uh, is perfect for that setting, you know, and Pinocchio in our version is disobedient and an individual, but an individual of generous spirit. He sacrifices himself for others, but he is himself. He doesn't simply obey and he's faced with great uh, punishment if he does, and he still does it. So I understand uh, that stop motion animation was one of your first loves uh, as, a, as a child and that you actually, I think my understanding was one of your first movies you, you started to make as a stop motion, but then there was a, a sort of an unfortunate theft and that prevented you from, from doing yeah. it. Yeah, they actually broke into, I mean, we had none of this, all these puppets and sets and all that. And we, we, were, we were shooting and uh, there's a few photographs like 20 photographs of our little sets and collection of puppets. They destroyed all of them and then proceeded to poop and pee on the floor, which I, I always think is a great preparation for work in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think we could just stop the interview right there because we got 
we got our sound bite and we're ready to go. Thank you, Guillermo. So obviously, Guillermo, stop motion is very uh, near and dear to your heart. And I can't think of a more perfect story to tell using this form. Can you talk about finding Mark and how you guys collaborated on on telling the story? Well, myself, I've, I've known Mark and his work for a long, long time, not to make him feel as ancient as he is, but uh, we've known each other. I've known his, I've known his work for a long time. In fact, uh, you know, uh, the Will Binton Productions was for my partner and I hugely important because we worked on clay. We worked on clay. We, we used to make armatures out of wood and resin and uh, wire, and we the, the the skins were clay. And uh, we always were looking at the way the clay was manipulated in the Vinton movies. And uh, there is a quality, 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 huge jump uh, with Mark in charge of the movies. Or when he joins the company, I think that just everything, animation, conception, execution becomes phenomenal. And then his work on his own... Uh, whether he was working with Walter Murch on a sequence in Return to Us or he was animating Fantastic Mr. Fox, he's phenomenal. And not only, and this is very important for me to say, and I've been saying it again and again, this is not a director calling a guy to direct animation. The, 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 the partnership was deep and we made decisions narratively and syntactically and the way we wanted to tell the story together. This is not just his acumen as an animator, but as a director. So I called him and I said, would you be interested? I think at the time he was unemployed. So he hastily accepted, only to regret it. Uh, <laughs> yes, only to regret it uh, over many, many times. Mark, uh, can you fill in your part of the story for <laughs> us? And what, what, what attracted you to this particular project and working with Guillermo? Well, it was work. <laughs> I mean, I was I was obviously aware of uh, of Guillermo's filmography, and uh, you know, when you get a chance to work with someone of his caliber, you obviously you take it. Um, you know, and I think our sensibilities were very much in line, so that was great. You know, it was wonderful to uh, to find someone who really saw things the same way that I did, and who had the, uh, he could protect us, you know, he, he could protect the project, you know, because of what he had done in his career, he had earned that right to say no to whoever was giving us notes. And we could make this thing, you know, a little bit more purely uh, from our point of view without uh, without interference. So that was great. I mean, that, those kind of opportunities don't come along very often. So uh, I, I will always be grateful uh, to Guillermo for that. And slightly bitter for a reason that I won't go into right now. <laughs> it can't help being more handsome than you, man. I, we had, this, I know. We had no. this discussion. We had no, this I discussion, know. Mark. Put it to bed. <sighs> Mark, uh, can you I have to be known about... as a sexy one. <laughs> we agreed on that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, putting the actual production together? I noticed you uh, you worked with McKinnon and Saunders on this. Uh, I, uh, uh, I I was part of the original uh, team uh, on Tim Burton's Mars Attacks back when that was a stop motion film. 
And so uh, uh, I got to work with those guys and it was just such a pleasure and a joy. We wanted the best and we wanted the best in terms of the animators. We wanted sort of uh, go to the best uh, company to the creation of the puppets and we we were able to get them. I mean, they are they are the real life Geppettos, don't you think, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's such a small world too. I mean, I was uh, I almost worked on Mars Attacks, and it was like it came right up to it, and I just I turned it down for reasons which I won't go into right now. But then the whole thing collapsed and became CG. But but that was my real introduction to McKinnon Saunders and. Those guys are immensely talented, and so it was only, it only made sense for us to take advantage of them uh, when we went into this project. And and stop motion, stop motion attracts uh, people that have almost uh, a religious dedication to it. And I mean, all yeah, it's well, it is in in many ways that because it, whether you're doing cinematography like Frank or you're creating puppets or you're animating, it's always the same carnival. Ultimately, it's a very hidebound society of people that believe in an art form that is, yeah, yeah, we are. And it's impractical and the studios don't like it. It takes too long. It's too difficult, but it's the most staggering, heartbreaking, beautiful form of animation in my book. I'd like to talk to you about the... um the the character design of Pinocchio because I think I, I can't imagine that you could have come up with a design for the character of Pinocchio that would have been more of a gift for sound and for for sound design than the one that you ended up with uh, just in terms of his mechanicalness and his joints and the way the way you designed that character was such a gift for Scott and the sound team. Uh, can you talk a little bit about were you a, were you thinking about that as you were thinking about the character design or how did that come together? Absolutely, I was not thinking about Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to avoid it <laughs> until it's absolutely inevitable. I stumbled upon the uh, design of Gris Grimley for Pinocchio when he published his book around 2003. And, um, you know, I, we were talking and he, he said, oh, wouldn't it be great? Uh, I, I was talking about I wanted to make a Pinocchio movie. I said, oh, I would like to make a Pinocchio movie. I said, I have mine and I'll produce yours, you know, and we'll use your design. And uh, as it started to progressing, uh, he kept his design pretty intact. And eventually when I took over as director many years later, I redesigned it with Guy Davis, but we kept the, this notion of something unfinished that uh, made of wood. Uh, one of the first things I asked Chris uh, very early, 2003, 2004, I said, why does he look like that? I said, oh, Geppetto was drunk. And I thought it was a brilliant answer. And I thought, oh, he was drunk with grief. And then we took it from there, you know. And I think if you, if you, if, if you just think about uh, the universe of Pinocchio, it depends all on the design of Pinocchio. If you don't have a Pinocchio that feels of a peace with the world, even as an anomaly, uh, you have sort of an uncanny valley in reverse. Nothing seems real. Scott, maybe this is a great point for you to come in and talk about uh, the sound design of, of Pinocchio and how you 
how you took the steps to bring that particular character design to life. Guillermo and I spoke the August before, and we were just talking, just throwing around some ideas. We were talking about uh, collecting puppets from old vintage puppets. And, and at that point, there was a lot of storyboards that it was cutting against. So, you know, we started collecting puppets, but puppets are very dense. They're like almost bowling pins sometimes. So it started having a hardness to it. So that sort of wasn't working. Then little by little, I started seeing from storyboards to visuals, and I started seeing all of the bolts and the nuts and the nails and sticking out. And then we were like, hey, wait a second, let me try a different wood. And, and he was starting to look loose. So then we started looking for looser woods. We, I contacted a guitar company to, got, to get me guitar wood that had really great tone. So we started collecting lots of wood. And I started putting it, you know, just let me let me do the, the, the normal thing, put the wood together. And we said, okay, that's very woody. And then we would start talking a little bit more. And we're like, you know, it can maybe creak and it can maybe squeak and 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 start giving it more of a vocabulary. So over time, as I was starting to get test visuals in, I was able to start testing it out. And even the part where Pinocchio starts coming into being, I started taking walnuts, like on the little cracking of the of the uh, joints and breaking walnuts to into place to give it a really interesting sense. And through our conversation, we realized that Pinocchio needed to be very fragile at the beginning, like watching a four legged animal just being born and it, it can't find its, its, its balance all the way up until the church. And we were getting to that point where we wanted the fragility where he looked like it was going to fall apart. Maybe. And then as we went from it being a thing and it a, a creature, we started wanting to evolve away from it. And all of a sudden the personality comes out and he evolves from being a wooden thing to being Pinocchio, the character. And we start pulling away from that part of Pinocchio where he finds the fragility. We go back to that at one point when Volpe starts just pushing him too hard and then he collapses show that fragility again to remind yes he is made of wood but we kind of transcend that so we went to little things where when he does the little wave in the closet it's just a delicate little squeak we had to find unique sounds one at a time and we would go through hundreds and maybe even thousands of sounds no that's not right Ooh, that's the right little squeak that's the right little and little by little and then what i did was because we knew that the music had lots of complexity, I built and woven together all these different elements. I brought it to the stage saying, well, look, we've got some wood, we've got some squeaks, we've got some creaks. Then with Frankie, myself, and Guillermo, as the music was playing, Guillermo would say, hey, can I get a little more squeak there? Can I listen to these? Oh, I like that element. Let's push that element. So it allowed, it, it allowed me to set up a template and such where we can iterate on the mixing stage push and pull and Guillermo could have a lot of control over how it plays against music to really hone in on the, the sonic signature of, of Pinocchio. I really appreciate you uh, talking about that, that, that focus on his earlier moments and the, the, the different treatment for that. Cause that was one of the things that, that really struck me watching the film is how, how wobbly he is. I think you, you, you talked about him almost as if he's like a newborn cult.
this is? What kind of sorcery? You wanted me to live. You asked for me to live. Who, who are you? My name is Pinocchio. I'm your son. What were you doing sonically to kind of give that sense of looseness of he's not, he, he can't really, he's not really sure how to move. We did a couple things. Um, I did use at one point, we, we, we tried the, uh, the, the puppet. The puppet thing, it, it didn't work. We, there wasn't enough fragility. I, I uh, did some Lincoln logs and I screwed them together and with string. Then we took a bag of wood and just kind of manipulated a little bit. So as he moved, we could kind of sh do these shifts, little squeaks. I uh, brought on a, a wonderful Foley artist, Dan O'Connell, and we ended up working a lot together. Um, but a lot of it was, it wasn't made at a single time. It was taking lots of elements. At one point, I may have had 30, 40 tracks of sounds. And then it was just like a lot of sounds. And then it was going through, handpicking through them, a little bit here, a little bit there, stealing that, and kind of music concrete, uh, just kind of piecing together the little pieces to give them a rhythm, give them a personality, and basically support what the character and what Pinocchio was going through at the different stages of the film. Talk to me a little bit about the the workflow and the process. I mean, obviously, you know, a Guillermo and Mark, I presume that there were, that there were storyboards before you actually built sets and started to do um, the animation. But Scott, did you get involved at that point? Or, um, you know, were you building a library of stuff to hand to Guillermo to cut in as they were animating? Or kind of how did this process flow? I reached out to Guillermo initially just to say hi and, and, uh, and, you know, just say hi. I knew we were going to be working together in which he then said, so what have you got so far? And I went, no, I, I started in, in January. I said, no, I think you start next week. <laughs> so, and Oh, okay. And it was great. I mean, you know, very rarely do we get an opportunity in, in films to in some ways fail to to do things and say well that a lot of times we have to do what we know works but that's sort of what we always do what's great about this opportunity is to really experiment and try things and that doesn't work that doesn't work because that's where you sort of find the treasures and the brilliance is through these mistakes or these little nuances and you know we were constantly talking and he would be giving input thoughts like i love at one point we talked about volpe one of the characters having coins and change in his pocket and i love and tap shoes i would the tap shoes brilliant so now the, the tap shoes became a point of interest <laughs> <laughs> that shows actually how complex this is because even with the tap shoes we did the tap shoes and is we did toe taps he says that's not right we did heel toe no that's not right and we went through iterations and we couldn't get it and then, to be honest, we went through the whole picture. At the very end, he shows me this 1930s, 1940s um, thing of, of this guy uh, up and down the stairs. And, and he showed it to me. I said, oh, I said, but we don't have that rhythm. He said, I don't care about sync. And all of a sudden, now I understood why we weren't connecting. He was looking for the rhythm. I was looking for the Because you don't listen, Scott. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> You produce sound, but you don't listen to it. No, no, we have. I tell you, the thing with Scott that is great is we have, of course, a well-worn, uh, long-time partnership, and that's great. But 
what we find is, and what I find is Scott never, ever gives up. So we found the dab shoes quite literally after we finished the mix. Uh, we came back and patched it. But what I admire about Scott is he, <laughs> once he understood it, once I was able to explain, explain it in clear terms, not because it's my second language, because, but because the fact is he cares about sync. I care about emotion. Uh, everything went really, really fast. You went back that night and recorded them. Yeah. You're saying you actually went back after the mix was done and. Yeah. That, and- <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, it's got to be right. We worked so hard. I mean, I'm such a fan of the visuals and of what the movie was. There's no way I feel that I could give up and not be correct. And you know, the hard part with sound is words are, are, are hard to describe a sound. I make a lot of sounds with my mouth, and so does Guillermo. And we sometimes communicate that way. But when he saw it and he said, oh, you wanted rhythm. I know, I know. So you wanted rhythm. I said, oh, we found the dancer because I had a dancer before, but I wasn't thinking like, so now we're doing rhythms and we made the sync work enough where the audience wouldn't tell. But all of a sudden it was about the rhythm. And and that's where I said, ah, found the dancer, put it in. Um, it was great. We had it in the next day. I said, Guillermo needs to come back. I said, he's busy. I said, no, no. I texted him. I said, I got this. Comes in. Loves it. What about the other two scenes? Add it. Boom, boom, boom. 15 minutes. We, we, we actually made the last adjustment to the mix after the London premiere. That's amazing. So I, I know the film was in development for a long, long, long time. And it went through a lot of, of iterations. And so, Guillermo, I, mean, I was just curious, was it always intended as a musical? Was that part of the, the DNA? Of- it was, even, even when Gris... Uh, even when Grace was uh, directing and the, the tenets of the screenplay that was uh, co-written by me and Matthew Robbins, the tenets were the, the same principles and ideas, but it was very differently organized. Even back then, it was a musical. But, uh, but we, want, we wanted to show that it was not a regular musical. And I think the key moment is, uh, wouldn't you say, Mark, when we crushed the cricket? Yes, because... We had just come out of a, a, a song and not too long ago, and then it feels like we're going right back into a song. So it feels like the audience is saying, oh, I see what's going on here. And then we say, nope, that's not what's going on here. This is not the movie you expect. We crush the cricket. He's not going to be delivering wisdom to Pinocchio. It, we're not going to burst into song every few minutes. That's not what this movie is. And I think, Glenn, the, the thing is, because uh, people have so ingrained the songs of the first, uh, the Walt Disney Pinocchio, they expect, uh, you know, it's very jarring that somebody is now trying to do a musical. So that is uh, the perfect antidote is to crush the cricket and show we are not, we are not the usual musical. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Sebastian J. Cricket, who is a, a character. And really, you guys just beat the hell out of him in this yes. film. It's well, really, that's it's really that unconscionable com- what you do. That comes from the book. In the book, uh, the cricket gets crushed and crushed and crushed. And and I kind of like that. I never, ever stopped. And you know this. I ne- Every time the cricket gets crushed, I laughed. Yeah. Every the time. entire mix. And then every time I would go, <laughs> But was he was he fish bait in the book also? 
Uh, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Guillermo, I've I've always known that you had a dark side, but this is a uh, this is taking uh, you to a, a whole another level. Cricket. Uh, can you talk a little bit about developing the songs and working with uh, Alexander Desplat on the uh, on the songs? Patrick McHale, uh, Mark, and I were in Paris, and I, I had successfully written uh, the lullaby, uh, my son. And uh, it went to my head immediately, and I thought I was Paul Williams. And uh, <laughs> uh, then Mark, uh, Patrick, and about, I, are you talking about Chao Papa? <laughs> no, my son, the one that no, the petals. No, my son, the one. Oh who, yes, yes, yes. And, yes. and I thought I was, uh, you know, a master songwriter now. And Mark, uh, Pat, and I were sitting around the piano with uh, Alexander. And I was soon informed in front of them that I was no genius lyricist. <laughs> we called Guillermo busking in the street. And we said, no, 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 this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did is uh, we, Pat and I laid the basics of the songs, the theme, the sort of uh, ideas that needed to be in the song. Then I did another pass. And then, uh, you know, Alexander and his... Uh, Lyricist friend Kat, they came in and, and organized everything beautifully and made them be songs. They're gorgeous. John, can you talk a little bit about mixing the songs? Well, first of all, I mean, when you have the splats music under your fingers, um, you take uh, things very seriously all of a sudden. Uh, and that's true. All the different scores I've mixed of his, it's everything he does is so precise and so beautiful. And the mixers that he has mixing for him do such a phenomenal job that there is a real sense of um, responsibility that happens, you know, um, and it gets to a point where you, where yes, er everything's set up a perfect way. It's set up exactly where it should be, but this is a film and you still have to look at the overall film. There's never ever any one aspect other than the whole film and support. And so nothing is safe, uh, especially with Guillermo when he's trying to look for a very precise type of emotion. And I'll say this because I, I, it always shocks me at first, but we got to this scene um, where there's an accordion solo in the middle of um, Mio Papa. And Guillermo says, uh, oh, that's great. Get rid of the accordion right there. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? I'm like, really according? He goes, no, no, we don't need it. I'm like, what do you mean we don't need it? And it's to clear uh, something else that's more important at that point. It was the newspaper of Mussolini. And then, so what we ended up doing was playing the first part of the phrase with the accordion and then go right into the strings after that, that completed the phrase and was very, very musical still. And uh, it's, that's just the reality, regardless of how great the music is, it's how do you make the film as good as it could be. And with great directors, and this is very true, they never think about any one aspect. It's just how do you get that emotional the, the, the value of the emotion across. What is the way to do that? And nothing is sacred ever, you know, and that's very important to remember. It's funny, but I think you, the last time you write the movie, you write it in the mixing stage. It's the last time, is the last time you have to structure a scene. It's not a mix of sound. It's a structure of scene. And, 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 you, and if you are not listening to the rhythms and what you need, it nobody wins. I mean, the great thing is we came in. Scott came in with 150 sounds, and you know you could end up with 15 
It doesn't matter. There's no ego. And uh, uh, Alexander's music got moved 24, 48, 72 frames to the right, you know, later. And and it's because it worked better there. And everybody was terrified in the mixing room. And I said, blame it on me. I'll talk to this blah. go, hey, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can always act uh, drunk. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> But it's true. Nothing's sacred. It's whatever makes it work. You know, you talk about structure of the scene. And uh, the other thing is, Guillermo, the structure of the film. Um, and I'm a very dynamic mixer. I believe in dynamics. I believe when somebody's coming at you, you want to know they're coming at you. And I would say Guillermo's the first time ever that somebody said, no, he's got to come at me a little bit more than that. And I'm like, whoa, okay, awesome. <laughs> Not scared of it. Bring it. Let's have it. I want, I want the audience to know. They, I don't want them to guess. I want them to know that this is a moment, a perilous moment, you know, through dialogue. It's like, okay, you got it. Absolutely. And it's one thing I've, I've done a lot of, I've done a number of films with Guillermo. And one thing I've noticed, especially near the, sometimes the second, usually the second or third playback for most people are, hey, I just want to hear it one more time. Good, I love it. They walk out. And I think we get it to a point where then sometimes I've seen Guillermo go, okay, now, this is where we're at. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's drop this. Let's move this. And that it's just extra little fine sculpting on the way a scene plays out and the rhythm of it. And in every film, you've, you're not out of indecision, but just how do I get that extra little tweak? I think a mix is like picking up uh, your room when you're in high school. Uh, the more you pick up, the more you find. You know, uh, all of a sudden you were picking up your clothes and now you're finding the pizza box from two months ago under the bed. And I think a lot of people just want it to be neat. And I think then we want it to be organized. And Mark and I would at the drop of a hat would do a little special sound of like the, the bubbles that sound like farts in the interior of the fish. That's Mark and I, and by the way, it's simulating. Mostly you, Guillermo. We fortunately at this point in the mix, Mark and I were mind meld and our notes were really similar. And when they were not, we knew the other one was listening to something that was completely right, so there was no question. We tried everything. Mark, is it, uh, uh, is it usual for you to be uh, uh, that involved during the, the sound mix and the post? You usually take the projects all the way through? Yeah, absolutely. But, um, uh, you know, in this case, Guillermo has so much more experience doing this particular style of, of mix that, uh, you know, I learned a great deal from him. It was... It was a fantastic experience. Oops. Mark, I think Gary turned it right Yeah, so as I said, you know, I, I, I learned a great deal <laughs> just, uh, you know, watching Guillermo work on this sort of thing. I mean, we, you know, we had things like that, that, that interior of the dogfish was a really interesting challenge and because it had to be a space that uh, you didn't want to be in, but at the same time was interesting because you wanted to understand why the characters would want to get out of there. So it had to be unpleasant, but it also had to be kind of interesting. So, you know, we, we, we got, Guillermo turned out to be the best at doing fart noises and, and bubbles bursting. <laughs> I was shocked at his uh, he was very, very good at it. 
almost too good. It's the thing I was born to play. <laughs> I can't play the piano. I can't play the flute, but there we go. Now that <laughs> the flatulo. Well, Mark, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I really wanted to ask you guys about the sound uh, inside uh, inside the, the the whale and the just that whole sequence and escaping the whale. That is such a tour de force for the soundtrack and and. Scott and Frank and John, please uh, deconstruct a little bit of that for us and how you approach that sequence. Some of it are, uh, I did some recordings inside the body, actually, to try to get, like, especially the stomach, the gurgling, and to try to, to give it that kind of... What do you mean you did, rec you did recordings inside the body? You can use certain microphones that are, are like, bands that I... I've done that over time where you can... It's like when you feel like a, a baby, you know, when you listen to the baby's heartbeat and all that. You, it's microphones, transducers, you could put over your stomach and you can hear your body. But it's got, it's got who's the stomach? <laughs> My wife's. <laughs> All right, that's what oh, I wanted you to say. Anyway. <laughs> so there's a lot of internal sounds that way. Um, I actually vocalized a lot of the internal, trying to create the dogfish outside, inside. So I was used to manipulate my voice to, to grunt I used so many different sounds and slowed them down to like slow water and movements kind of give a gurgling and this too we did dripping we did a bell buoy because we figured he swallowed a whole bunch of things so at times you'll hear like a little buoy in there we for example uh decided that when he blows his horns they should sound like uh, the horns on a foghorn they, they should sound mechanical rather than just animal and the decisions inside, because you have so much low frequency, it's very easy for it to become noise once the music comes in. So uh, what I think is the decisions on a mix like this have to be bold and immediate, and you just say out, 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 in. You, it's, it's like a tango. Somebody needs to be leading. When you're mixing a sequence like that, you have to say sound leads or music leads. Or, you know, you cannot, or you fluctuate, but you have a design in mind. You cannot be, you can, you cannot try for them to have a truce. It's an all out war between sound and music. So, you know, you say music leads, sound punctuates. That's one way of mixing or the opposite. Like, uh, I think the, the hardest mix we ever had was Pacific Rim when you had, 250-foot robots fighting 250-foot monsters and a score. And you have to say, okay, here the score goes away, or here the sound leads. Through the whole movie, I'd say even with Dogfish, there would be a beautiful little musical phrase, and we wanted to really protect that. But then there would be something after that phrase, and all of a sudden be like, da-da-da-da-da, and then... So there was always, like, a tango is a great word. So the music would say something, I would answer something. And then we've been back and forth consistently. And you have you have the problem. The the big fight in a mix is for the mid ground, for the mids, you know? And because a lot of music, a lot of the musical instruments are gonna become noise in the mid. And and a lot of the sound design is gonna agglomerate into a sort of a hum, if you're not careful. So it's about what is uh, one of the things I would do with Frank. I would say to Frank, play me every single track and call them. 
track one, track B, track A, B, C, whatever you want. And then we would say out, 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 in, 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 in. Or we would drop uh, with John an, an instrument or two, you know? Because a lot of times going into the mix, I don't know what the music's doing at that point. So I have to come with all the tools available at different frequencies. So then we do go to the mix. It's easy for us to take things out. It's hard and, and crazy to put stuff in after the fact. So like I'm in well prepared. And, 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 and it, it has to be as a director, if you, you, you were on the recording of the orchestra and you know, for example, if the oboes were recorded separately, you know, we can drop that or they did the timpani. Separate, let's drop the timpani, et cetera, et cetera. And one good thing that uh, Desplat does is he always makes sure that you are, you have the low end all the way through. The low end's always there um, covering every beat. So if the mid-range gets too mushy, you can actually lose, you know, the percussions, all the mid-range percussions and stuff, and just rely on the, the low end, just the, the you know, uh, bass to give you that rhythm. So you never lose the, that sensation. Uh, and that's, that's a very, that's an experienced composer putting that down. One thing that Guillermo and I spoke about even early on, especially with dogfish, if we have sustains, like, like Guillermo was saying, like mid range sustains, it's very easy to get mush, but like with the blops and the things, things that go, boop, sounds that come and go really quick can percolate inside and outside of the music in ways that can be heard without overpowering or taking over something. One of the sequences that I particularly love, and Guillermo, I think it was just such a, and, and Mark, such genius to come up with this idea of, of Pinocchio's afterlife experience. I love the processing area, uh, which sonically is such a rich environment. Can you tell us a little bit about the sound design of processing and what's going on in that space and how you design? Yeah, so, you know, early on, I had that and I just, I was trying to create something otherworldly, godly. And I just wanted to throw something out there because I was working on that scene. And it's a combination of pitch changes of voices, doing some echoes, reverse sounds going in. The sisters were actually not the same processing, similar, but different. Because I wanted them to be different, but feel like they're part of the same spiritual family. So I wanted to make it where it was coming through all the speakers. So when they spoke, especially with death spoke, it was everywhere. It was all encompassing. And at that point, was it something you sonically heard or was it something you just knew? Whether it's telepathic or I just wanted to make it feel like grand. So you had Pinocchio being small and here's this voice, this all knowing voice and it was just a feel thing i experimented with it a little bit i sent it out for mark and guillermo to hear i think early on and i think everyone sort of liked it always the challenge when doing anything like that is to make sure you can hear all the words and that was always a delicate balance that we did the best we could and then john even did some some tweaks as well we one of the things this movie required was uh you needed to start the mix very much in in the sort of like a proscenium, only on the screen, using very little uh, surrounds until reel three. You know, we wanted the first couple of reels to not feel like you were mixing a live action movie with using the surrounds and the the sort of fishbowl mix approach where you're immersed. 
I, 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 that was a very clear instruction when I heard the first uh, premix. I said, get rid of all the surrounds for the first three reels because you need the scale of the mix to be the size of the puppets. You don't want the mix to sound bigger than the animation. And then little by little, we, and I think the culmination of the full fishbowl starts with death. When he goes to the other side, then now you are all in limbo. Everybody in the, in the theater is surrounded. And then we could do that with the dogfish, et cetera, et cetera. I think it was also important that the sequence with the rabbits was sort of mundane and it had to feel like these guys were just going about their business to really contrast the next room that he went into. So I think that that was, that was an important thing for us to do. When Guillermo came up with the idea about the puppet show at the beginning and we went mono to ending up in Atmos, I have to admit, I, I thought it was the most brilliant thing that we had done because, you know, as, is, as there's a lot of stuff we do in design, but very rarely do you see a mix really evolve from the story. It's not as common these days. And to sit there and say, as the show evolves, so does the spatial side of the mix. I, to be honest, I thought it was brilliant. But I think that uh, the wisdom of the, the decisions of keeping everything to a minimum in the beginning, uh, was there even from the early discussions. We, we spotted, Mark and I spotted with uh, Scott in LA. And when we were spotting, I don't know if you recall that, Mark, we were saying we should keep it small on all the beginning in terms of design elements. So Frank, can you talk, t tell us a little bit about uh, that as a design idea. And then uh, once we get to that, to that sequence with death, you were, you were really able to open things up. Well, the movie starts off in mono from the very first frame of picture, first first frame of sound um, was just to keep it tight and then open it up as, as it goes. So it was just by by chance that we were kind of headed that way and Guillermo had it in his mind and, you know, spoke about it more and more and we pared it down more and more. But just by, by chance, just the image and it starts off with the acorn and from black to acorn, I had everything tight. And then kind of blossomed out a little wider and a little wider. And we were just harmoniously on the same page. It was strictly by accident on my part. Um, and, and working with, with Guillermo and Mark it was, was fantastic. Just the evolution of sound. There was nothing that we did. We didn't just buy it for the sake of time. It had to mean something. It had to work. It had to be part of the storytelling, part of the characters through the film. So with, with you know, Guillermo's ideas and focus and stuff you know you learn a lot even though you've been doing it for quite a while but it was just uh, it was a pleasure just to kind of again just focus on different things and get different feels all the way down to the dogfish and the most dynamic parts it, it was just a lot of, a lot of fun and, and the film is fantastic and it's well done all around mark and i had to fight for the time that we needed on the mix board uh originally because uh, you know animated movie they gave us a number of weeks and we said, no, we need more. And when we fought for more, Scott and I knew that our timing generally takes a little longer. But uh, I think that uh, we ended up understanding that we needed as many passes as a live action movie, a big one, to reach a simplicity 
which is very, very, very at odds. To be simple, we needed to elaborate the mix and make sure we were not mixing something superficial. Well, you certainly did that. It's a, it's a fantastic track. There's another sequence that I really loved, which is um, when Pinocchio uh, goes off and and uh, joins Count Volpe. Uh, I, I love the performing for Il Duce uh, sequence from a sound perspective. That was one of my favorite moments in the film. Uh, I, I, you know, Guillermo, to your point, that's a very. There's a lot going on in that sequence from a sound perspective, but it's very specific and very simple in a way. Uh, Guys, can you, uh, Scott and John and Frank, can you talk us uh, through mixing that particular sequence and putting it together? Well, it's funny that that's actually in my head right now. That's so bizarre. But uh, the reason it's in my head, because we're talking about simplicity. When I first played that for Guillermo and Mark, it was, Guillermo said, it's too big. This is just a little sideshow in a tent. There's, why, what are you doing? You know, so it was really a thing. It was like, let's be more real. So nobody is, is taken out of the film from the bigness of it when this is just a couple we went rinky dink rinky dink yeah exactly because it is about i mean certainly it's about the lyrics but it's also about the showmanship and all that stuff so it's how much do you get away with uh before it's just overblown and not believable um and i that was a really good um moment because that was the very first time and guillermo said yeah rein it in don't do that and it's like you got it and so it was kind of made sense you know he's you're starting to understand the film as you go forward. And of course it all becomes, you know, threaded together from start to finish. And this is where I got really medieval with the the score. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, uh, John was thinking a a French passport uh, was (laughs) getting sealed with an assassin sent by this plan. Because Alexander had made that he had chorus, female voices. It became it became very pop. And I just said, out, out, out. And John was like, like a cartoon biting his fingernails, flying everywhere. You know, like but but it was it was because it it felt like a decision by a composer and a director and a director uh, trying to impress. And I think we quickly, we took a quick side meeting, uh, Mark and I, and I said, are you with me or are you? Uh, no, I think, I think we took a quick side meeting and it was, we agreed. Yeah, absolutely. We would be cruel to the Frenchman. <laughs> And uh, and uh, I think I think that everybody was hoping he would come after me, <laughs> but everybody agreed. Let's do it, Guillermo. You had a perfect you had a perfect out because you could just say, "Well, it was all Mark's decision. He's sitting right there." <laughs> yeah. No, but 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 I think I think it's important to say this because sometimes Alexander is very daunting as a composer. He is so thoughtful and so elaborately beautiful what he does. And I just say, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that happens in every aspect of designing a movie. And you should not care about somebody's feelings. You should care about the result because then everybody is happy. It's really hard because he's made this beautiful confection, you know, and on its own, it's just you, you fall in love and then you have to you have to fall out of love because you have to serve the story and the film and that's really hard and unpleasant 
I love the character of uh, Spasaturi. Uh, Scott, can you talk to me about uh, your design for you made that you made that monkey very, very, very expressive. You know what? I, I would love to take the credit. That's Kate. I was blown away. I had early recordings and then I started joining the ADR sessions and we started recording Kate again. Uh, wow. I mean, she's amazing. She she asked Glenn, the one thing she said is, I don't want to do a sampler, uh, because normally a character like Spasatura, you have a sampler. Um, happy monkey, sad monkey, blah, blah, blah. And, and she said, I want to do the ADR shot by shot. And she often would say, what is the monkey saying? Of course, I can't let you guys go without asking. You're on the Dolby podcast. Uh, for, the, for everybody at home who has a... a a Dolby Atmos sound system and is watching the film streaming in Atmos on Netflix. What are some, what are some great Atmos moments for them to listen to? Right off the bat. I mean, when the planes come over, when he's on the swing is so beautiful. And, uh, and the music uh, all the way through just has moments of Atmos that really just open up the theater uh, to give you room, you know, for all of the detail that Scott has added throughout. Um, but right off the beginning, you get, you get pleasantries. You know, the re-education camp, dogfish. Um, there's so many areas that we went subtle. We didn't go gimmicky, any of any of the stuff. We made it spatial. We made it open. We made some of the rain on top. And we just did those things that just, you know, a good Atmos mix opens it up. I think that's what, when I, we, Guillermo and I we started, we did Pacific Rim together for the first time. I said, what do you think? He goes, everything feels clearer, cleaner, more open, more spatial. And it's not like there's a sound here, there's a sound there. It just opens up the space a lot more. And I kind of, what I love about the film is we start mono, we open it up, and we kind of end mono. We kind of end where we started, and which is amazing. Yeah. Scott, you brought up the ending, and uh, I got to tell you, one of my favorite things about the movie is the ending. Uh, you know, I think most most other versions of the Pinocchio story, you know, have him becoming a real boy at the end, which has always kind of felt perverse to me because you're suddenly switching characters. And I don't know who this person is. I don't have any investment in this in this human character. But you took it in a very different direction, which I just loved. Uh, Guillermo and Mark, can you talk about ending the movie the way that you decided to? It's much more beautiful to realize that he has become a real boy. Like over there, you've watched it happen, or or maybe even always was, you know. So we we you don't have to change to uh to to suit someone else. You just have to figure out who you are, and either they'll accept you or they won't. And that's the beauty of the ending of this film, I think. Yeah, I think that the lesson, if there is one to have, is that the one that changes for better is Geppetto. And he is the one that becomes a real father. That's the lesson. He was not a real father. It was so easy with Carlo. You know, Carlo is perfect. But he becomes a real dad. Uh, there's a great moment where the cricket says, I'm a bug, sir. But even I can teach you a few things about being a man. You know, and, and he's right. Uh, and the one, the arc is, Gebetto becomes a real death. It's also about how we idealize memories of people. Like, I think that's what Geppetto was doing with Carlo. That's how we saw him in that first act, was this idealized vision that Geppetto had of him. And that's what 
that that Pinocchio could never live up to. Orson Welles used to say, "Oh, how they will love me when I'm dead." <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. He was right. Well, uh, Guillermo, I can't, but you know, it was, it was just about a year ago that uh, you and I got to sit down together at the Vine and talk about Nightmare Alley, and you didn't say a damn word about this movie. So now I'm very curious to know what you've got up your sleeve and when, when we'll have a chance to sit down next I time. I can't say. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll meet again in a, a year or two. All right. That sounds great. Gentlemen, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I really love Pinocchio. It's a great film. And, uh, and I, I, I hope you guys have every success as you roll it out into the world. Thanks for coming on the Dolby podcast to talk to us about it. Very cool. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye-bye, guys. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is currently available on Netflix, where it is streaming in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. And as always, we'll have a link for you in our show notes. Many thanks again to Guillermo, Mark, Scott, Frank, and especially to John Taylor for making his second appearance on our show in one week. I'd like to offer my extra special thanks to our friends at Netflix who are instrumental in helping us put both of these conversations together for the show. And speaking of which, if you haven't checked out that episode on Bardo from earlier this week, you know, the one with the other visionary multiple Academy Award winning director from Mexico, Alejandro Iñárritu, you can find links to that and all of our episodes on all the major podcasting platforms in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.